The following is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family. Hello once again, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, welcoming you to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories, where we talk almost exclusively the old school of wrestling. We're going to talk a lot of territories in the future. We're going to talk a lot of, well, classic wrestling memories. And this week, on this episode, we are continuing our 101 series. And I do want to thank everybody who's listened to all of our shows and especially the feedback that we've gotten on some of the some of the 101 shows. This week we are talking booking 101. We did Babyface 101 and Heel 101. Now we're kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit. Not not too much, but talking the philosophies of wrestling, things that work, things that maybe don't work. And of course, I don't have to do it alone. Once again, joining me from a nice padded cell in the asylum in South Kakalaki, the crazy train himself, Mr. Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. This ought to be a, a really interesting uh, episode, I think, because I think even more so than the baby face and the heel 101, you're really, I think, going to see a difference on what I think versus Seth thinks, because you're going to get the, the opinion of someone who's uh, a fan versus someone who's been in the business. And that doesn't necessarily make either one of our, our points invalid or valid. It's just a difference, and that's why we have the show, so y'all can listen and hopefully be entertained and, and maybe learn a little thing or two while we're at it, and that's why we want your feedback. Let us know what you think. And I think that is one of the things that makes this show unique, is your listeners are going to get perspectives from me as a near 30-year fan who's never worked in the business, have never taken a bump in my life, and But somebody like you, who was a 15-year veteran and wrestled all over the world and wrestled with, against, and for a lot of great minds and great talents in the business. Mm-hmm. Does give it an interesting perspective, doesn't it? Yes, yes. And now, to translate the term of booking, if you're listening to the show and have heard the term booking and might not know or understand the, the true meaning of it, the booker is essentially the storyteller. Uh, of of the the promotion, uh, he he's the modern day term would be writer, but I can't stand the term writing and and wrestling. But we're going to talk what makes for great storytelling, and there's two words that we should make sure are defined here before we go on, and that's a booker and a promoter. Mm-hmm. We touched on this a bit in uh, volume three of Classic Wrestling Memories, the Gold Dust Trio. Tootsmont was the booker, and Billy Sandow was the promoter. Vince McMahon often is looked at by uh, internet fans as being a booker. He is not a booker. He is a promoter. He is involved in the booking process. Right. Uh, because right. Because his final word is say. It's his, it's, his, it's his dollar bill on the line. And he hires his booker uh, and either gives said booker complete autonomy and says, I trust whatever you do, or works in conjunction with the promoter to help the promoter's vision Come, come come forth, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's almost a, a similar dynamic to, say, a producer and a director in a movie, I think, that is, is a, a fair yes, assessment. Yes, that is exactly the analogy I was going to make, is that the, the promoter is like an executive producer, whereas the director mm-hmm. is, is more of a booker. The, the, the booker is the guy that will plan out what matches are happening, who's winning, who's losing, who's mm-hmm. going to be the champion and such. Well, actually, the promoter is probably going to tell you who's going to be the champion, but the promoter is the guy that uh, books the buildings and 
provides the glitz and really talks people mm-hmm. into the building. Right. They're they're more the business end of the, of the of of the quote unquote business, you know. Uh, and, and also uh, to use a, let's use another geek analogy you can use since we are our sister podcast is Geekville Radio. Um, the promoter would essentially be the Dungeon Master's Guide and all the all the stuff that comes from T, from the old TSR for Dungeons and Dragons. The Booker's the Dungeon Master, mm-hmm. and all the wrestlers are the players. I don't, is that a fair analogy as well? You think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so because I I've thrown down in some dungeons in my time, and there are times where the dungeon master would take a pre-written uh, adventure and put his own spin on it. You know, sure. so, 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 and then I would see what was written before. And a lot of time this, this guy who's not a professional writer actually had better ideas than the, <laughs> the professional writers. Right. And I think uh, fans also understand on the independent level and your smaller companies, uh, it's not unusual for the promoter and the booker to be one and same. And, mm-hmm. Uh, we'll use we'll we'll actually talk about some examples of those at, in bigger promotions uh, as we talk throughout this episode. But generally speaking, when you think of big time wrestling, so we're talking the WWE, uh, WCW, ECW, um, even the and the territories, you know, the, which is obviously a lot of what we focus on on this on this particular podcast. The booker and the promoter were generally two separate entities that worked in concert with one another. Um, and when those examples come forth, we'll point that out. And when one, when they were one and the same, we'll point those out as well. What I thought we'd uh, do to start things out is talk a little bit of differences in philosophies when it came to the territories. Now, we can and will mm-hmm. devote entire future episodes to individual looks at these territories and more. But I figured we'd just have some summaries here. Right. Uh, for, f- for a taste of what that is like, listen to our last episode, The Great Memphis Split where we talk about the Memphis territory in general and more specifically the split between two promoters, Jerry Jarrett and Nick Goulas of the Tennessee territory. And we're joined by our guest, Dan Dragon Wilson on that one, who was intimately knowledgeable about the Memphis territory, having grown up on that one and having a, his great uncle Gypsy Joe being a star in that territory. Uh, so that could, that, that episode's a good foray into what our territory shows are like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I had a lot of fun doing that show, but uh, the, the so first Dan. So did Dan. Dan, And I thanked him twice the other night when I saw him and and he said I had a blast. He wants to do it again. We probably will have Dan on the show if you all listeners enjoyed having him maybe talk other things. But um, anyway, but uh, the first territory is probably my favorite territory to talk about. And that is the Carolina territories when under Jim Crockett promotions. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that the Crockett's did, uh, I think even Jim Senior did it a lot, too, is Mm -hmm. they did the dominant heel champion where the babyfaces yes. had the uphill battle. The babyface would win the championship, and he'd probably lose it you know, a couple months later. It wouldn't necessarily be a short run, but he'd have his moment in the sun, and then another monster would come along, topple him down, and then it's the uphill, uphill battle again. I mean, right. that, that, that's, that's a pretty fair assessment of how Crockett did a lot of things, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's also, um, when you're talking philosophy differences, I think that's something that, is hard for current day fans to see uh, unless you can, unless you're a diehard fan, you compare say, Oh, WWE to like ROH to like new Japan, like Lucha underground. They all have their own vibe, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, that's kind of how the territories were back in the day. And as a worker, you knew uh, what was kind of worked at each territory and what, what, what each regional area wanted. You got to understand the fan bases were different. 
the promoters were different and the bookers were different. And sometimes you could see based on who was the booker, that change, that dynamic change, a territory could be known for one thing. And then they hire a booker that had had success in another territory. And all of a sudden that other territory, the one that they just moved to became a lot like the other territory they just left. Um, and when we talk about specific promoters and or specific bookers, uh, I know that Seth's got one on his list that is a great example of that. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. But the Carolinas, yes, you're right. Uh, a thing that they emphasized here on top of that was uh, kayfabe was very big here. None mm-hmm. of the cartoony stuff. It was in, in the Crockett promotion going all the way back to when it started in the 40s. It was always you fought for one of three things. Personal pride or sorry, four things. Personal pride, championships, money. Or women. Those are always the, the, the overall overarching reasons why angles happened and, and what the Booker booked, no matter who the Booker was in this territory. Uh, and that was that was the Carolinas. That kind of rings a bell of a quote from the show Once Upon a Time that Captain Hook said. He's like, I, I only uh-huh. put my life on the line for two things, love or revenge. <laughs> Which, you know. well, what's, what's another territory that you can think of that had distinctive a booking style, no matter who the Booker was? Well, the, the next one uh, on my list is Capital Wrestling, which, to make a very long story short, uh, eventually morphed into the WWE. This is the company mm-hmm. that was originally started by Tootsmont and Vince McMahon Sr. Mm-hmm. And everything we talked about with Jim Crockett Promotions, about the, the, the dominant heels and the, the uphill battle for the heroes, mm-hmm. it was the exact opposite for, for Capital. And really, to an extent, well into Vince Jr.'s run. Uh, they mm-hmm. they built up a top babyface and centered the promotion around that babyface. Um, most recently, under current WWE, it, it's, it's John Cena. But before that, it was Steve Austin and The Rock. Before that, it was Shawn Michaels. Before that, it, it, it was Brett. Before that, it was Hogan. Before I was Hogan, a warrior it was, before that, actually. Yeah, yeah, for, for, for a year or two. Yeah, a couple years. Uh, but before, yeah. Savage had his little runs in there, too. Mm-hmm. But uh, before Hogan, it was Bob Backlund. Before Bob Backlund, it was Bruno. So you know you you see a pattern forming. You know they had yeah. Really, the only the only break they had in that time was a year and a half, two years that that superstar Billy Graham was the mm-hmm. was the mm-hmm. was champion and the centerpiece. And even then, it can be argued he was he was if not the first one of the first cool heels who really had a babyface reaction, even though he worked and was pushed as a heel. You know, right? And and my understanding is Vince Senior had him as the epitome of the transitional champion. He put the belt on him knowing that one day he was going to put over Bob Backlund when the time was right. Right, right. It was a matter of getting Bob ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things I'm pointing out here by being, bringing up these, these different territories, these different philosophies, is there is no one way to book wrestling. Mm-hmm. If there was only one way, then right. all the promotions would have the same product. Which I think is part of the malaise that we have overall in wrestling now. Because with really one dominant company... Even though I brought up other examples with like ROH and you know TNA or excuse me Impact Wrestling now, and, and all these other companies, really WWE is the dominant game in town, and, and that's the style of booking that we see, and that's it. it it's become synonymous to the ca- to the casual fan, to the mainstream fan. This is what wrestling is, and I think what Seth's trying to bring out is back in the day that wasn't true. What was what was wrestling to you was whatever territory you lived in and you saw weekly on your television. And if you went and visited Uncle Joe and Aunt Sally, you know, three states away in another territory, you'd watch their wrestling. It was completely different and it had a different philosophy. And, mm-hmm. and that was just the way it was. 
Is that kind of the point you were trying to bring up? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it, it just goes in stride with what you were talking about, how you know, Ring of Honor and New Japan and WWE, uh, they all have their own their own styles. Now, granted, Ring of Honor is fairly close to New Japan, but th- their styles are similar enough that it, it doesn't seem mm-hmm. like a, a, a clash of styles when you see them co-promote. But right. could you imagine Bruno Sammartino in Mid-South or Florida no. or the Carolinas? No. He'd get booed out of the building no. in the Carolinas. And not because of him being a uh, northerner; it's because his style just probably wouldn't fit with, right? Uh, you know, with with, with uh, how the Croc- Crockett's promoted things. Yeah, once 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 he was an established star, and the fans saw him in the magazine, he could come down for a big show and be a, be a special attraction, and he would get over. But a long term run in that territory, probably not. Right. At least not with a major change in his push or his style. You mm-hmm. know, and the same could be said for others. Uh, you know. That's why there are a certain handful of wrestlers, and we won't go that, into that in this episode, that are truly amazing when you look at the history of professional wrestling and their ability to go to every territory with these different booking philosophies talking about and get over no matter what. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, um, I, I, can, uh, I, I can think of a couple that we're probably going to bring up. Uh, one that, uh-huh. that is going to have a name I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, a couple of times during this episode Mm-hmm. Uh, is Memphis, which was basically built around Jerry the King Lawler, both as a heel and, a, and mm-hmm. as a babyface. And Memphis right. had the reputation for being one of the most violent territories. I mean, even back sure. in the 70s, they were doing pile drivers through tables, blood everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, fights, you know. in, fights into the crowd, fights into the concession stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, 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 and you know, like, like Dan brought up last week on the Memphis episode, I mean, crazy stipulations. They put their their Cadillacs up on the line. They put their wife's hair up on the line. Just just insane stuff, um, you know. And that was that. But that's what we're. It, you have to go back to what Susan Green said in our second episode, Seth, when we talked about the territories in general in the seventies. There was at one time over twenty twenty three territories across the country. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason there was that many is because they all were financially soluble. I mean, the fact that means that they were drawing fans and they were making money. With all these separate different booking mentalities, I think it really drives home your point that no one booking philosophy is necessarily right or wrong. It's just about you know knowing what works for that particular group of fans, and and the fact that you had twenty three separate companies working, and, and the fact that they were in operation means they were making money. So you know, right. I, I can't think of a, of a of a bigger stamp of approval to what you're trying to say than that. Can you? Right. Now I'm, I'll bring up one more territory that really. I mean, it had it had no shortage of violence, and it really was trendsetting for its time. And mm-hmm. this is the last territory I'm going to bring up, and that's world class, which uh, was built around the Von Erich boys. And mm-hmm. here's and the Fritz thing before that. Yes, yeah, yes, correct. And um, you know, I'm, I'm stealing a quote from uh, Jerry Jarrett, who I'm sure we're going to bring up later in the show. Uh, you know, unless you're working today for for Vince, you know, for for WWE, and you're on the upper upper tier of the card. Uh, how many people outside of WWE are making a hundred thousand dollars or more a year? The top guys in New Japan. That's it, yeah. <laughs> right? But you know, back in these territory days, when you had twenty territories around, they all had their own thriving territories. A lot of those, you know, probably the top five guys were making high five figures into the six figures, and mm-hmm. they they weren't traveling all over the world. But by but by seven by seventy standards, that was good money. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and to bring up, I'll, I'll bring up one more territory to, so you kind of get the, the idea we're talking I'll bring up Minneapolis, the AWA, um, mm-hmm. who was, you know, there was an example of where the booker and the promoter were often the same. 
sometimes Vern Gagne would hire bookers, but a lot of times he booked it himself. Vern, with his amateur background, he liked guys with that legit amateur background, and he emphasized that. Um, and so that was what worked. And I mean, Minneapolis was a thriving territory for years. But you know, his top guys were like Nick Bockwinkel and, and guys like Billy Robinson and himself, who were the, they were shooters, you know. And so that was that was more of the style up there, where it was this emphasis on on true athleticism and 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 reality based, uh, you know, and more like you know catches catch can, which was totally different than the over the top they were doing in you know in the Northeast or the bloodbath mm-hmm. they were having in Memphis or these hour long draws where it was a lot of character development and the personal you know i'm I'm fighting you for because you got my woman like we had here in the carolinas you know so they say they're all these different territories and they all had different philosophies but yet they all were thriving and all were making lots of money and uh, to to wind up our territory and philosophy talk here we just discussed all these different philosophies and all these different styles mm-hmm. i do have a list of three things bookers should never do and three things bookers should always do. And again, this is not a see-all, end-all. Uh, you, you know, again, there's no one way to book. But three things a booker should never do, and I don't think I need to say the name of somebody who does this way too much, and that's swerve for the sake of a swerve. Now, uh, there, there, there should be a long-term story in, in place. Uh, second thing a booker should never do is ignore the fan feedback. If a guy's getting a monster pop, then chances are you should probably put him out there more and put him higher on the card. And the third thing that a booker should never do is think that their way is the only way. Now, uh, we, we talked a little bit in pre-show before we went on the air train. You were you were you were going to uh, disagree with a bit with some of this here, right? Well, I, yeah. Well, I would refute number two a little bit. I totally agree that the fans have to um, you have to listen to the fans, obviously. Um, that's goes without saying, it's just that, and it's hard to explain unless you've been in the business. And I know that our listeners are probably here tired of me saying that, but I'm sorry, folks, you're going to hear it again. You're going to hear it many times at every episode. Um, part of why kayfabe dying was so bad. Um, and, and, you know, the internet kind of exposing everything. And quite frankly, we have no one to blame, but ourselves. When I say ourselves, I mean, all of us in the business, cause we're the ones who exposed it. I mean, it wouldn't have got out there unless we let it out. Um, so was that mentality. And let me explain what I mean by that. Even back in the day before the Internet existed and you could go online and, 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 and find out insider terms and, and you know, know all the, or the rough inner workings of who, what a booker was and what a heel and a baby face was and all that stuff. The vast majority of fans who went to wrestling, and this is hard to believe for, for the younger listeners, they knew it was a work. They didn't know how it worked. They didn't know how the trick was done. They just knew there was something to it and they didn't care. They just paid and they enjoyed it. You know, um, when kayfabe died, the ability to, to essentially manipulate the fans got much more difficult because so much is known now. And the real beauty to me of great booking, no matter who the booker was, was the ability to, Know what the fans wanted before they even, before they even knew they wanted it, and then manipulate them into, into and by giving it to them, mm-hmm. uh, almost being, for lack of a better term, fortune tellers, you know, seers into the future, uh, and just knowing it was going to work, and then presenting it in a way that that it would work, and then tweaking it where they needed to, and um, 
there's the key. When, when I say tweaking, if it isn't working, you you change it. I mean, there are examples of that. Um, uh, well, some one couple of modern day ones that I can think of that come right to my mind were the the babyface turn of Undertaker and the heel turn of The Rock early on in their WWE runs. You know, it was it was obvious that it, yes, Undertaker was over as a heel when he first came in, but the crowd was turning, and so Vince didn't fight it. And he turned him babyface. You know, Rock, same thing. They they, they brought him in, and the, and the crowd just felt this. We don't like this guy. We don't like what you're presenting to us. So he let Rock go away for a little bit, and he brought him back as a cocky heel, and that gave mm-hmm. birth to the Rock persona, which became you know one of the biggest stars ever in the wrestling business. So there's an example of where a promoter got it wrong, or a Booker got it wrong, I should say, and they 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 said, halt the brakes, let's tweak it. But they had a they had that long term plan you're talking about with both those guys. You know, uh, flexibility I think is a very very key um, trait for the best bookers out there. You know, and that goes hand in hand with what, what your third thing was. Don't always think that you're right. You know, you're like, the ability to change and, and and not be so stubborn in your ways. Um, I, I, when I discuss one of the bookers, I will discuss. I will give a good example of what happens when you don't change your ways. We'll, 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 you know, we'll table that part of the discussion till later on in the episode. Okay. <laughs> I'll come back to it. Right. Right. A- absolutely. I, and I, I guess the best way I can sum up the ignore the fans part mm-hmm. is, um, there's always going to be the contingent of fans that are going to heck, heckle, whatever you do. And they're going to be then, dissatisfied no matter what. <laughs> yeah. But, but then of course, We've talked about before off mic, and uh, I think maybe even a little bit on mic and on A one or or here in Classic Wrestling Memories. If they're already paying their ticket to sit in the seats and heckle, mm-hmm. you already got their money, right? And I know some of our listeners might think that I'm a jackass for saying that because I say it all the time. You know who else I heard say it in an interview on the WWE Network? Shawn Michaels. I'm not trying to put myself over by putting me and myself in the same league with him. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. He did, a, he did a whole lot more in the business than I ever did. And there you go. There's a whole other rant that I could go on about the people who complain <laughs> we'll about this that and that. we'll that for another time. <laughs> right. A- absolutely. But yet they're they're still investing time and money in the product. But okay. But, but, but it's okay. It's okay. You are, you, you're, you're reserving your right to reintroduce that, that evidence later on at a, for, at a later date is what you're saying. <laughs> absolutely. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, uh, shifting gears, three things that bookers should always do, and that is what we just talked about a bit, ha- have a long-term plan. Uh, now that doesn't necessarily mean that you have every single step of the way mapped out, mm-hmm. but have a big match in mind. You know, for your you know, in a modern day term, you know, a pay per view or something of that effect. Have your main event thought out in advance, and then start the build to that. And in many cases, if it's if it's good enough, the longer the build, the better. A, a good example of 80s uh, from the 1980s, and I think we talked about this uh, off mic in, in, in prep, but the uh, the Mega Powers. Oh, yeah. Randy Savage won the world title, and uh, to steal a quote from Dave Meltzer, I think just about anybody who had any inkling of understanding of the business knew that WrestleMania five was going to be Hogan versus Savage. And They're going to have for the a year build year, for that match. Yes, for the next year, Hogan and Savage were the best of friends, and then Savage did his turn. Now, granted, I could do a whole commentary about how Hogan was actually the, the, 
uh, the dick in the story. But, so that's because you're, uh, you're a savage, Mark. So we'll, yeah, we'll give you a pass so, on that yeah. one. I still laugh today at pukamaniacs. Yeah. There, there was there was a little bit more of a line there, I think, uh, on that particular angle where didn't quite. And I think, I, quite frankly, the bookers of the WWF at that time, I think, realized with Savage's charisma, they weren't going to get everybody on Hogan's bandwagon, so to speak. And I think they were fine with that, you know. Right, right. Uh, but I, I would have been, you know, I, I was one of those people that I was like, okay, I, I'm understanding Savage's point of view here. So, but. <laughs> That's something we could probably dive into for you know, the uh, you know the rock and wrestling period and such for, for a future ep- episode. <laughs> a journey through Seth Zillman's rose tinted Randy Savage glasses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> we didn't say we, we didn't say we were unbiased. <laughs> we never said that. I think everybody's a little bit biased. You can be fair, but you can't be completely unbiased. Exactly. But uh, second thing on the list of things Booker should always do. Listen to the fans' reactions. Again, there's a measure of, how, how would you say, um, uh, caveat where you you have to listen to uh, the broad range of reactions, not the select very vocal few. Right. It goes hand in hand with what you said with the second of not do. Don't ignore the fans. You're saying mm-hmm. here, listen to the fans, but, but do it, um, uh, what's the word, responsibly, I guess, for lack of a better term. Right, and and it goes uh, with what, what with what you said about being the fortune teller, where you're able to gauge where the fans are going, so you know mm-hmm. what to mm-hmm. give them. And in the end, you're giving the people what they want, but yet you mold them into giving them what they want. Yeah, th- that I hate to tell folks this that that is wrestling at its core. There's a reason that all of us, myself included, are called marks. They're taking us for a ride, and we're willingly allowing them to take us for a ride. So go with it, you know. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's that that that's why it's called a work. That's that's the true meaning of work, ladies and gentlemen. Wrestling fans out there listening, you're they're they're working you. They're 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 manipulating you into going the way they want you to go. And I know this. I don't care. I enjoy the ride. Mm-hmm. You're, it's no different than when you plop your money down to get a movie ticket and go into a movie. Yes, you have expect. It's just like wrestling. You have expectations of what the movie's going to be based on the hype, the trailers, and the commercials. And generally speaking, most movies live up to or exceed expectations. And when they don't, we pan them. Wrestling is no different. It's another form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. But the, it's it's that director, that producer, the writer, the actors, all of them working in concert to take you on a ride. And you're willingly letting them take you on that ride. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's called paying your hard-earned dollar to be entertained. There's nothing wrong. That's, that's as market as it gets, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whether it's a movie or a TV show. Nobody watches a movie or TV show thinking it's real. No, no. But the final thing on my list here for things Booker should always do, and this is, I think, pretty universal, which is accentuate the strengths of the talent and hide the weaknesses of a talent. I remember hearing uh, Ted DiBiase, I think it was an interview with Wade Keller, where he was talking about Junkyard Dog, who I'm sure we're going to bring up a little bit later, and... I believe he was talking to Bill Watts, and Bill Watts said something to the effect of, well, he can't do a 60-minute Broadway. And so Ted was like, so don't have him do a 60-minute Broadway. And for those that, that don't know, Broadway means time limit draw. Right. And anybody who's seen the Junkyard Dog wrestle knows that you're he's not a guy that you're going to get a 60-minute match out of. You're going to get a hell of a promo, and you're going to get a guy that is going to please the crowd like nobody's business. Great ring entrance. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, you're gonna get, you're gonna get, yeah. And but, and another yeah. a, another perfect example of that, uh, as far as talent goes, is Goldberg. You know, yep. Do, do you expect to see a twenty minute Goldberg match, or do you just want to see him spear and jackhammer the hell out of somebody? Exactly. Road Warriors. And there's an you know? there, there's a, there's an example of a Booker knowing what the fans want and taking it for that ride. They don't want to see Bill Goldberg trade hammer locks with somebody. They want to see the beast. Excuse me. All you know, all due respects to to Brock Lesnar. They want to see the beast unleashed. Let him do his hoss fight stuff. Leave. Yeah. That's why Brock Lesnar's over. Right. But we don't want to see that. Uh, you didn't want. Did you want to see that of Shawn Michaels or Ric Flair or Bret Hart? No. You wanted to see a thirty to forty-five minute classic where they're trading holds and near falls. And guess what? The smart bookers that had all those guys we named, that's exactly what they gave you. And in time, if you can come up with examples where those guys didn't work, I bet you you can go back to the booking, the creative side, where the bookers said, don't do that. And that's where the fans turned. Mm-hmm. Moving on to the next section of our discussion here, we each picked three bookers that we are going to discuss, much like what we've done in the previous 101 series where we picked three baby, we each picked three baby faces and three heels and why they were so great, and then we have a mutually agreed-upon subject that kind of encompasses everything we're talking about. So first on my list, if you don't mind me going first, Train, uh, first on my list is uh, a, a, he was a tag team with his brother Sandy in the 1950s, but he really got a reputation as a booker after retiring from the ring, and that's George Scott. Uh, He's probably best known for being a booker for Jim Crockett Promotions in the late 70s, early 80s. So that means he was the guy that uh, helped put Ric Flair and Ricky the Dragon, well, before he was the Dragon, Ricky Steamboat on the map with, with the, the matches they had in the 70s. He also booked a lot of the national expansion that Vince did uh, when, when uh, Vince McMahon brought, uh, bought WWF from his, from his father. So that means a lot of that early mania stuff with Mr. T and Greg Valentine as the IC champion, uh, kind of the IC belt being the the workers' title, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Andre what, and John Stud feud. Mm-hmm. A lot of yeah. Uh, but what I'm going to talk most about was after he left working for WWE, George Scott eventually landed back in the Turner run WCW, mm-hmm. and he talked Ricky Steamboat into coming out of retirement because uh, Steamboat retired shortly after I think it was WrestleMania four uh, mm-hmm. because he wanted you know he wanted to spend time with his family. And he had some lingering back injuries, too. But yeah, mostly because he wanted to spend time with his family. And he put Ricky Steamboat in the main event feud with then NWA champion Ric Flair. And they had those three great matches in 1989. It was like an awesome trilogy of matches. And then, and then it led to Terry Funk returning and attacking Flair. That was all George Scott's doing. So, um, I mean, do you have anything to add about George Scott? Or am I getting something wrong here? Or? No, no, that's all right. I, I, my, I have mixed feelings on George Scott. Um, I think he's a great example of, of some great things about Booker's. And my, just once again, my opinion, ladies and gentlemen, and things that are bad. Um, as far as, as being an example of some good things, uh, we talked about earlier, and we said we would bring him up, and here's the time. There are times that Booker's would come in and completely change the territory's philosophy. Well, George Scott is the prime example of that here in the Carolinas. From tag teams to singles, I want to say, right? Yeah, we talked a little about that about with Mike Mooneyham on the first episode, where we talked about the first Starcade. When George Scott came in in 1972, I believe it was. Um, if I'm wrong, refer back to episode one. Mike Mike Mooneyham will correct me. He got the date right, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, it was exactly right. It was it was a tag team territory. 
and he decided to change it to a singles territory. Even told J- Big Jim, Jim Crockett Sr., you're going to lose some money and the crowds are going to dwindle because they're not conditioned for this. But I have a vision. Back to that long term that you were talking about, Seth, it's going to work. And fortunately, here's an example of, of a booker and a promoter working in concert. The booker had the promoter had faith in the booker. He let him do it. And he brought in young talent like you brought up, like Ricky Steamboat, like Ric Flair, started pushing them, Blackjack Mulligan. Um, but then, but to, you know, he put, brought in Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel and made that his top feud. And I can tell you, living here in the Carolinas, that feud is legendary. There are people, you know, in their 60s and 70s who you're not going to convince them there's ever been two men tougher than Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel. They still talk about those matches. And, you know, he had a vision. He stood by it, and it worked, and, and the Crockett's became a, a, a dominant, predominant uh, singles territory that eventually, because of his vision, would, would be the home territory of arguably the greatest wrestler of all time, the greatest world champion of all time, and Ric Flair. Um, so, yeah, he had great vision. For, for goodness sakes, he's the guy who saw Ric Flair as the nature boy. He gave him that moniker. He's the one who, when Flair had his, his famous plane crash and broke his back he was a heavy set guy he was about 270 280 pounds he by his own admission had been training with kim patera and was a big weightlifting fan well he lost a lot of the weight obviously during the recovery because he was laid up that's when george scott approached him while he was rehabilitating and said you know i want to give you a little bit of you know the buddy rogers thing let's get you a nice robe made and get you some nice clothes and well get the rest is history i don't think he can speak any more about having a vision and understanding booking a lot of booking is is seeing something in a guy they might not even see in themselves and putting him in the right position to do it can you think of anything better than the guy who said hey rick flair you need to be the nature boy <laughs> no no you'd, you'd be hard pressed and, and and along the same lines of what you brought up what he did in the late 80s for for turner was that he was the one that convinced buddy rogers to come in out of retirement you know after he'd had a heart attack that was the reason why he had to lose the belt to bruno back in 63 for vince and put over Ric Flair to pass the, the mantle of the nature boy, you know. But I also think George Scott can be an example of bad things, too. Uh, bookers, like wrestlers, can wear out their welcome, I think. Um, a, a particular group of fans can become desensitized or bored or or just whatever to a guy. And let's be honest. I don't care how creative you are, and we're going to talk about a lot of creative minds in this, you will eventually run out of ideas. Shakespeare had writer's block every once in a while, you know? And so I think when George came back in the late 80s, he was trying to, all he was doing was bringing back in guys that had worked in the 70s for him, you know? That's why he brought back Steamboat and Flair, because it was such a hot feud 10 years earlier uh, when they were in their 20s. Well, now they were in their late 30s, early 40s, they were seasoned vets, so it was it had all the athleticism, but with all that seasoning. So yeah, those matches were awesome. And I would argue, late thirties, early forties, uh, I think you can make the argument for wrestling. That's like your top drawing years. That, that that's when you're in your absolute that prime. Is, that is the the, the 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 general rule of thumb, and that is changing now because the style is changing. But for eighty years, the general rule of thumb in the professional wrestling business was your prime earning years are between thirty five and forty two. That seven year period. You're young enough that you can recover from the from the bumps and bruises, and 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 still retain your athleticism. But you've been around long enough to learn all the tricks of the trade. You know you have you're you're that's that's the peak. Did John Cena and Brock Lesnar look forty? 
I, no. I don't look at them and think they're 40 years old. I look at them and cringe in fear. <laughs> you know? Right. Now, there are exceptions to every rule. There are, there's always going to be rocks and Kurt Angles and, and guys that are young, Randy Orton, that just, you know, but they're freaks. They're, they're, they're exceptions. The vast majority of the top guys over the last 50 years, no matter who you ask, you'll look and see that their, their prime earning years were when they were those ages, whether it's Jerry Lawler or Steve Austin or Ric Flair or Ricky Steamboat, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, The Undertaker, Bruno San Martino, Bob Backlund, superstar Billy Graham, Dusty Rhodes, the list goes on. All the top guys you can name, Vern, Nick Bockwinkle, going all the way back to the 50s, all the guys that you can think of as top, top guys, that was when they were at their at their peak, you know? So, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the numbers bear out that mentality. But, you know, the problem with that is that also many brought back some guys that were past that window we're talking about that had been great back in the 70s, but time catches up with everyone. That's why I'm retired, you know? Guys like the Iron Sheik, who had an abysmal run. He was he was burned out. You know, he, he just it just he wasn't his knees were shot. You know, the business was changing. Yes, uh, and that was part of why George had some issues in that eighty you know eighty eighty nine time period. But that was a lot of it too. He was he was going back to what had worked, and in some examples with the right guys, it was great. With others, and that is a that is a problem that every booker runs into. I don't can't I can't think of a booker that doesn't that isn't a problem with. But you know I'm not poo pooing on your, your choice. I think George Scott is a great example of a great booker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think that that there were there were I mean no but we all we said as a caveat going into this no no booker's perfect. They all make mistakes. Right. Right. And you did bring up the Iron Sheik and I just want to put this out there and I'll I'll probably link it in the show notes at, at Classic Wrestling Memories just just for the heck uh-huh. of it. Uh there is a video out there uh, and it was around 88, 89, I want to say, really when, when Sting was first catching fire. I want to say he was the TV champion. Mm-hmm. And it's Sting trolls the Iron Sheik. And that's exactly what Sting does because Sheiky had this thing where I, he, he'd work out with clubs or, or something like that. And he'd oh, yeah, them over the, the, his Iranian, the Iranian weight class. And, and, and by the way, side note, that's the shoot. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've seen him bring those to, to – you tried them. Them things ain't no joke. It's it. You have to be strong and have technique to do those. Yeah. So, oh, I, I bow, Sheiky I bow, was absolutely legit, <laughs> dude. I bow down to Sheiky. That's the brother. Is he's he? Had, you'll never get argument from Crazy Train on that one. Iron Sheik is was and always will be all man, and I will leave it at that. But look up that video because I found it hilarious. Uh, the, the, it is kind of funny. I know the one yeah. you're talking about. <laughs> now, now the match they had wasn't anything to write home about, and that kind of goes back to what you were saying about. Sheiky not being able to do what he could back in the day, and that's not our knock on Sheiky. We just talked about how great he was. We just put him over. Both of us did. Mm-hmm. It's just he was shot. I mean, he started when Flair did, but you have to remember, uh, you know, in '72. But you also have to remember he was already been beat up when he started with that great class that came through. He had already wrestled, you know, Olympics, and he had been a bodyguard for the Shah of Iran, and 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 you know, he was through military training. He was. He wasn't. The, he was. He was a little bit older and a little bit more beat up than they were going into it. So anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, who do you have for your first pick as far as a Booker example? I'm actually going to take who many people consider the true godfather of modern day booking, and it's a name that might not be familiar to all our listeners. Some of them I know they will know exactly who I'm talking about, and that would be the man who ran Championship Wrestling from Florida for years, and that's uh, the late great Eddie Graham. Um, Eddie Graham was a man with, I believe, a fifth or seventh grade education who probably knew how to read his fans better than any man that's ever booked in this business ever. 
Um, we talked about in the Gold Dust Tree episode how Toots came up with a lot of the a lot of the great finishes that are still used to this day. Eddie Graham perfected them. Eddie Graham's ability to do all the things that we've talked about to to see a guy and say this guy's going to be right in this gimmick, this guy's going to be work good with this guy. The long term planning, knowing where he was going, uh, uh, thinking the big picture. Eddie was all that. Um, you know, I've heard stories, and I, and you like to quote it. I know, Seth. He could figure out who should work against each other based on watching both of them lace their boots up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I heard Mike Graham tell that story, and it ju- it just blew my mind. Eddie Graham was an example of one of those guys where the promoter and the booker were one and the same. Now there were other there were times when he had bookers, but every but but he was much like Vince that everything he the buck stopped with him, you know. And and I I don't I can't speak from personal experience, but my understanding is is that. He was definitely one of those promoters that when he did have a booker, it was this is my vision now make it work. You see what I'm saying? Where it wasn't one it wasn't one of those examples where Jim Crockett Sr. said, "Okay, what you want to do George, do it." You know that was George's vision, right? But Eddie booked a lot uh, of his own stuff, and I don't think anybody who understands even a little bit about wrestling history has to know that the Championship Wrestling from Florida was a vibrant territory for years and made lots of money. Tons of stars came out of that territory. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, it was uh, you know Susan Green brought that up when we had her on in episode two. It was a territory everybody loved to work because the drives weren't that bad, the money was good because he was a good payoff guy, and it was it was the Sunshine State, you know, good looking people, and, and you didn't have to go to you always had somewhere to go lay out work on your tan. What, what, come on, it's Florida, right? <laughs> now I, I'm, I'm going to put you on the train. I'm going to put you on the spot here, train. Uh, we didn't talk about uh-huh. this in pre-show, so I'm uh, calling uh-huh. an audible here. Uh, why did Eddie Graham choose Florida to be his territory? I have no idea. I mean, yeah. he was just from there, I think. Yeah. Well, this is Do coming you know? from this is coming from uh, a DVD interview I, that I have with with Mike Graham. Is it one of the things that had, was it one of those things with the Welches and the Fullers and how they were always flipping back and forth? Uh, well, that might have something to do with it, but you, you mentioned a fifth to seventh grade education. The reason mm-hmm. why, at least as Mike Graham tells it, Eddie's son. Uh, mm-hmm. The reason why he chose to book Florida is because he only had to worry about one front. He didn't have to worry about other territories ah. around to the east, west, and south. He only had to worry about people up up north from him. And I'm like, right, which would that's genius. <laughs> and, and that did, at times that was two territories, but usually it was only one. You're exactly right. Uh, usually it would be champion. It would be Georgia Championship Wrestling, which would have been mm-hmm. Ray Gunkel at the time. Um, and uh, was a promoter, and occasionally, uh, what I was talking about with the Welches and the Fullers, which we went over there, there them a little bit when we talked to Memphis and briefly discussed Knoxville last week. They would sometimes, depending on you know time periods, dip down and into like Pensacola, you know, and the Panhandle. But he essentially had the whole state. You know, he had from Miami up to up to you know Orlando, Tampa, Tallahassee, you name it. You know, so. Yeah, I, that that makes sense. But he just was, I think, when you list the number of bookers, great bookers, some of whom we'll discuss in long form here in a little bit and some that we won't mention, that came from Eddie Graham or will tell you that Eddie Graham, they, they either booked for Eddie Graham first or worked for Eddie Graham and then went and booked somewhere else. Is just It's, it's a laundry list of great bookers. Um, he is, you know, uh, in football, you, you hear this term, the coaching tree all the time. And it's a great coach who who had a lot of success, and then all his assistants wind up getting hired away to be head coaches elsewhere. 
Uh, a recent example in the NFL would be Bill Belichick with the Patriots and how many of his assistants have been hired away. Uh, Tom Landry had that back in the day, of course, and Vince Lombardi. And, and he's kind of that guy for bookers. And uh, when if, if, if we mentioned one later, I'll say, hey, there's an Eddie Graham guy. <laughs> but um, <laughs> oh, oh, we will. <laughs> yeah, I think the, probably the greatest example, or at least I don't know if it's the greatest example, because he did so many great things. Um, for God's sakes, he found Gordon Soley. For that alone, that's, you know, what else can I say about that, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I think the probably the most well-known by modern fans was his turning the American dream Dusty Rhodes into the American dream Dusty Rhodes. Uh, right, for, because, the, uh, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but Dusty, for most of his, the, the first probably five Maybe ten years, years of his yeah. careers, yeah. He he was a heel with uh, Dick Murdoch as the, as the Texas Outlaws, mm-hmm. and even when he was when he was single, like when he went to Florida in the early seventies, he was still a heel. He was a heel, and um, he. But he, I mean, it's undeniable. We if you don't if you need to hear any more about how we feel about Dusty Rhodes, go back and listen to our Dusty Rhodes tribute uh, episode from a few years ago on A One Proper. Uh, we all are huge Dusty fans mm-hmm. and there's absolutely nothing i say my opinion is if you don't like dusty Rhodes and you claim you're a wrestling fan then you aren't really a wrestling fan that's just where i stand on that i agree um but anyway you don't understand pro wrestling that's all i can say about that um but dusty undeniably had a charisma about him and and it, there was something that people could get behind and you know eddie saw this even as, as heelish as he was and the main heel faction or, or, or thing going on in, in 75 or 76 when he turned Dusty, I cannot quite remember the date, was Gary Hart, Playboy Gary Hart, uh, as the lead heel manager uh, with a stable of guys, and Dusty was one of them. Another one was was Pac Sam, uh, was Pac Nong Sam. Pac Song, I want to say. Pac Song Nam. They were playing, he was Korean, big Korean guy, but playing off the fact, they they said he was Vietnamese, playing off the recently ended Vietnam, Vietnam War, and obviously, you know, uh, nerves were still pretty raw amongst the American populace because of that. And he was just your typical big foreign menace wrestler. And Dusty was in the stable with him. But but long before we get to the turn of Dusty, and I'll get to that in a second, to test out his theory, and I think I've told this before on another episode, Eddie kind of had this vibe and this feeling that Dusty could be turned babyface. But he wasn't sure. So to test that theory... Uh, when he had Jack Briscoe, who at the time was the touring NWA world champion and a Florida boy and a part owner of the territory uh, for Eddie at the time and was the biggest star in Florida, even though he was gone most of the time defending the title, he was still the top guy to the fan, in the fans' eyes in the state of Florida. I mean, he's the NWA world champion, right? Back then, of course, the, the, the belt was much more well-protected in the title than it is nowadays. And uh, a, a champion always kicked out of pin attempts. Babyface or heel, you know, unless the finish was for him to put the other guy over. Mm-hmm. So Eddie had a, Eddie had brought in, you know, it was his turn. He had gotten the champion from the, the office in St. Louis, and it was Jack. And he couldn't push Jack as a heel, so he pushed Dusty as the challenger on this tour with Jack as the top heel in the territory. Well, it was one of the bigger one of the big shows they had in Tampa, and they ran. I mean, they ran the, the Hesterly Armory was the Hunter Hesterly Armory was their normal weekly venue. But once a month, they would do the Bayfront Center in St. Petersburg, which was a much bigger venue. That was their big shows back then in that territory. And uh, the main event was Jack versus Dusty. And he told Jack and Dusty, he said, you know, 
when you get close to the end and it's time, you know, to get ready to take it home, when you go to cover, when Dusty, Dusty makes a little comeback on you, Jack, and he covers you, don't kick out. Put your foot on the rope. Something that small doesn't seem like much, but for those fans that Jack Briscoe didn't have the energy to kick out, that he had to just get, just barely get by on the skin of his teeth to get out of this pin attempt, that meant a lot back then. And, and, and Eddie didn't ask him to do that so he could gauge, like you said, listen to the fans, you know, and your, mm-hmm. your, your second example. And he heard some of the fans start to get behind Dusty. They weren't booing him like they were. And they were happy that Jack won the match eventually, but it was a little mixed. And that's all Eddie needed to know, you know. Just that little thing was all he needed to know that this guy's going to be my next major babyface. And, you know, so then famously, uh, you know, Mike Graham was the young white meat babyface, son of the promoter, amateur background. The girls loved him. The guys liked him. It, Eddie was still wrestling at the time, too. They were being beaten up by, you know, Pac Nam and, and, and Dusty got in the way one night in a tag match and took a big Mongolian chop from Pac Song Nam. And he'd had enough. They built it over several weeks of Dusty being kind of ignored by by Gary Hart. And he turned and then cut the passion promo about he's an American. And he's tired of watching this big Vietnamese monster push Americans around. And guess what? The rest is history. And we had the birth of probably the greatest baby face of all time. So that to me is a, the, the perfect example of Eddie Graham. And just like we said, it's, it's, it's kind of a combination of all the things you talked about, having a long-term vision, listening to the fans, having that, 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 like I said, almost being a seer and knowing what they want, testing the waters and then picking the perfect time. To me, that's the, if you want to see, and you, it's on YouTube, it's on the, the WWE network. I think it is one of the most masterful baby face turns you will ever see. And it was all booked by Eddie Graham. So I got to follow that. Okay. Um. <laughs> I'm sorry. You wanted me. <laughs> well, uh, I had to. I had to pick Dusty Rose, one of your all-time favorites. I know. <laughs> uh, so, good, good night, folks. We'll see you later. Keep your waitress. <laughs> anyway, try the wheel. No, no. We, uh, <laughs> we've got a lot more to go. I'm yeah, sorry, Seth. Who's yeah. your second booker? But well, uh, we, you had actually mentioned names that had worked under. Eddie, and then got jobs elsewhere as bookers. That's my next pick here, and that is Kevin Sullivan. Uh, this is a man yes, who books. definitely an Eddie Graham disciple, without a question. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll, we'll gladly tell you that. Yes, yes. Uh, and this is a guy who booked several promotions. Uh, I think he was even booking in the 80s, wasn't he? Like, like still when he was in his wrestling prime? Yeah, I think I, I, some of that, some of that um, you know, the army of darkness he had with Luna and, and Bob Roop and, all, and Mark Lewin and all of them against Dusty, I think that I believe Sully had the book at the time. Uh, he's probably most famous for uh, our generation. Now, 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 granted, you're more old school than I am, but uh, he's probably most famous for helping book WCW in the mid to late 1990s. So he actually booked a lot of the initial Monday Nitro stuff. He helped create the NWO, mm-hmm. also helped create the Dungeons of Doom and the Faces of Fear, but... That's because, again, going back to dealing with talent and egos and stuff like that, he will freely tell you that he knew the Dungeon of Doom and the Faces of Fear were hokey. But the character of Hulk Hogan, you know, the red and yellow superhero training prayers and vitamins Hulk Hogan, that was the environment that Hogan was comfortable in. And, and could since, excel in. I mean, right. ticket sales showed that. Right, right. I mean, I, I said it uh, back in one of our one of our first shows that... 
uh, somehow Hogan made this promo work about how the giant broke his neck, the big now known as the Big Show broke his neck, and Hogan's big plan of revenge is to build a monster truck. You know, you can't see it right now, but I'm shaking my head. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but who else but Hogan could cut that promo? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you you will get no argument for me out of that. <laughs> and. I please understand. I, I I totally understand the head shaking, but I, I'm just saying that 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 it it's, goes back to the playing from the from the strengths. Uh, right. But Kevin Sullivan knows long term storytelling. Uh, he's not a guy that's going to book a swerve just to swerve. When he got the book in 2000, after they had canned Vince Russo the first time, mm-hmm. his run was a total rebuild. He had a a stint where there were there were no interferences. Uh, the the you know, the cruiserweights. Right. Everything was clean finishes. And then I think they did a bit in the summer when uh, um, uh, Shane Douglas, I think, did a run in. And like there was this audible gasp from the crowd because they hadn't seen a run in 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 literally months. Months. Yeah. Uh, But I I think Sullivan is a perfect example of uh, a booker being able to gauge not only what the crowd is doing, but what the locker room is doing. It's it's a very, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, political job. And I don't mean politics in a like a republican or democrat sense i mean politics in its truest truest form you know having soothing to, with, with with uh personalities and egos and whatnot right, right exactly but uh i I'll, so a lot of wcw uh good stuff was booked by him in the nitro days he helped create the nwo we're gonna have uh, a future show just based on the nwo in the near future uh, one of my favorite nwo moments was and I, I don't know if this was specifically his idea, but he would have been on that that committee. Uh, and, and he was the, the head of that committee at the time, by the way. Right. Uh, but they did the, this whole Sting Army thing, and the NWO was in the ring, and Sting in quotes comes out, tries to fight him, and gets gets tossed out, and then another Sting comes out and gets tossed out, and then like three, four, five Stings show up at a time, and they all get tossed out. And then there's a sting that shows up in a sting mask, and Buff Bagwell punches him. And wouldn't you know it? He no sells it. it, it he no sells it. <laughs> the entire crowd loses their collective junk, <laughs> and mm. it's the real sting. He takes off a sting mask, has a face paint on underneath, and he lays to waste everybody in the ring. I mean, with a baseball bat. <laughs> right. Can you get any more babyface 101 than that? No, no. I, 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 that's that's the epitome of the Popeye. I've had enough, and I, I, that's all I've had. All I can have, yeah, that kind of thing. Right, right. And I can understand a babyface using a baseball bat when there's ten guys in the ring. When it's twelve that, on one, yeah. Right. <laughs> and and all those twelve guys are uh, aren't above picking up baseball bats themselves. Right, and, you, and you've got to remember these same twelve guys. Whether granted, these were no name guys. They were chucking out of the ring just prior to that. They weren't small guys, so these were guys were, were, were acquitting themselves quite well, you know. So I think something that you know Sullivan's one of those guys. I think I like Sully a lot, you know. I, I just think he's. I know it's it's weird to hear a Southern boy say that you like a guy with that that thick of a Boston accent, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. I personally, that's part of Sully's charm, you know. But regardless, well, and, and I, I, think, I can speak as a Midwesterner. You know, I've mm-hmm. heard Southern accents that I have to stop and think to understand, and Sullivan has that Boston accent that I have to stop and think <laughs> to understand. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you got some up your way, too. You know, those frozen chosen up in, like, Minnesota and Wisconsin. Don't you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, far, if you, for, you know, off topic, 
Any of our listeners want to know what I'm talking about? Watch the movie Fargo. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, you'll anyway. know again, don't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got a few of those in Chicago, too. They get they dip down that far south, I know. But anyway, <laughs> um, I think Sullivan gets a little bit of a bad rap by a lot of modern fans because of you know the turmoil and the, the, the train wreck that was WCW there at the end. But I think they need to remember two things. This guy... Juggled all those egos that we just talked about, Sting and Hogan and Flair and Luger and Nash and all those guys, and booked against the mighty WWF at the time and beat them for almost two straight years. Now, granted, he had a lot of talent to do that with, but we're talking about the juggling, the politics you said he did behind, and that's all that can be said. And I don't care who you are, and if you say that I'm say that no, I didn't do that, I'm telling you right now, you're lying to me. Everybody loved the creation of the NWO. Every wrestling fan loved that. Yeah, the first year of the NWO was poetry. That's the best way yes. I can describe it. Right, and that's the first thing. And the second thing I want them to remember is, and this especially goes to the new school fans who are all about quote-unquote work rate and all that kind of stuff, the, you know, the new modern type of fan. This is the guy who fought for and booked and gave the American birth on a national scene to talents like Chris Jericho, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, the Mexican guys like Psychosis and Rey Mysterio and Conan. Think about that. He 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 booked the cruiserweight division mm -hmm. in WCW. All the stuff that all these modern fans love, and that all the guys that do it now, like the Young Bucks and and you know and and all the half the NXT roster. Who you, when you ask them, who were the wrestlers that, that influenced them? The names you're going to hear are all the names I just listed. He's mm -hmm. the guy that brought them to the brought them to yeah. a national and booked them. Yeah, absolutely. Now I I can't help but think we're going to get some ardent fans who will bring up the name Eric Bischoff at this point. But mm -hmm. Eric, by his own admission, I have heard these words out of Eric Bischoff's mouth mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. Eric is not a booker. You know, he yeah. fits that mold of he was the promoter. So right. and, 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 and yeah, caveat, we, we went on a great length to explain the difference between a promoter and a booker at the start of the episode. WCW was a little bit different because it was a corporate entity that was, you know, what it was. But mm -hmm. essentially, because it was part of a much larger corporation like Turner, Eric, for all intents and purposes, served the role as the promoter and Sullivan served the role as booker. Right, right. You That's know? what I was getting at. I mean, technically, the owner was Ted Turner. We get that. And, and technically, if you want to really extrapolate it out, it was whoever owned Stock and Turner at the time. That's really who it was, you know. But w with that being said, it, it was because it was WCW was his own division within Turner's great corporation. The head of that this would be Eric Bischoff, which would be the promoter. Right. Anyway, I just thought I needed to delineate that for anybody who wanted to argue that point. You make a, you you're mm -hmm. very 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 smart in bringing that up, Seth. Thank you for bringing that up. You're welcome. Uh, your your next uh, uh, your next pick, your second pick. My second pick is also a disciple of the great Eddie Graham. See a pattern and, forming uh, here, folks. Yeah, <laughs> and as a guy who I've already mentioned uh, involved in in the said angle of turning Dusty Rhodes, and that would be Playboy Gary Hart. Now I know a lot of people um, that know Gary Hart, at least our listeners, probably are familiar with Gary Hart as a manager of the JTEX Corporation during the George Scott era you talked about in the late 80s in WCW, um, or as a manager uh, of, of of a heel stable in world class in mm -hmm. the early 80s during the Freebirds Von Erich heyday. Um, 
He was, of course, a monster. He was, like I said, manager of Dusty and and, and Pac Song Nam and, and Florida in the 70s. Uh, personal note, first live wrestling show I went to as a fan, as a young seven or eight-year-old boy, he was the manager of the tag team champions against uh, uh, our tag team uh, challengers against the Briscoe brothers at Greenville Memorial Auditorium. So, I mean, I saw that was what I think everybody associates with Gary Hart is he was an on-screen manager and he was, and he was a very good one. And, and I, I might add a underrated one. And I'm sure Gary Hart is another name that you will hear a lot. We might even dedicate a whole show to him, but definitely oh, when, we, when we, we talk about managers, we, when we talk about managers, we would be remiss if we didn't mention Gary Hart as one of the greatest of all time. But I think where Gary Hart's true talent came in the wrestling business was as a booker um he was a, he was a phenomenal booker he had a great mind for the business he had an ability to talk to the boys uh like 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 sullivan did in a way that they understood because he had been one of the boys uh for god's sakes he survived a plane wreck just like rick flair did uh he had a plane crash into the bay into the tampa bay when he was working in florida almost killed him um if you, if you ever go and watch any old tape of 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 Gary post 75, you'll notice he has a huge scar across the bridge of his nose. Uh, the impact was so hard. He doesn't know how it literally stripped all his clothes off underwear and all and, and peeled the skin off of his nose, broke both his legs and his arms. And the man still somehow swam to the pier and got up and knocked on someone's door for help. Can you imagine that? Both broken, two broken legs, two broken arms, completely naked, your face literally scalped, and you're knocking on the door asking for help. And I've heard him tell the story of you can imagine the reaction of the poor woman that answered his door at two o'clock in the morning to that, but <laughs> screaming, mm-hmm. I need help. I've been in a plane wreck. But anyway, I, I'm just speaking to his toughness. Um, he grew up in the streets of Chicago, uh, by his own admission, was involved in, you know, old street gangs. So he, he 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 famously carried an a, a old school. He carried a razor blade in his shoe, and it had had no problem. Like Leroy Brown, it. huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are famous stories of locker room stories that he 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 pulled it out before and threatened guys. You know, uh, he was he was a, he was a crazy guy, man. But um, he booked he booked some in 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 um, Florida, and he booked some and or helped Sullivan out some in WCW. But his biggest run as a booker was in World Class. Um, and, and you can't speak world class, especially for, for any fans of the last 40 years without that time we just talked about before, which was the Von Eric Freebird feud. Um, Hart, Gary Hart's probably the only booker that could have ever could have made that work. And I'm, I'm talking all the great bookers are going to name. He's probably the only one. He took a job that no other bookers wanted. Dallas was not a hot territory when he took it over. And a lot of the reason was everybody knew Fritz was pushing his boys. That was an example of where the promoter had a vision and it was the booker's job to make the promoter's vision happen as if you were if you booked world class in the early 80s and the thing of it was it's kind of hard to book uh, against three guys without a faction you know and this is the days we're talking before the four horsemen before the nwo for the factions didn't really exist yeah you had you had managers that had stables but an idea of a cohesive unit of three guys Mm-hmm. That were heels just didn't exist. Yeah, to to give an '80s example, you know, Bobby Heenan had a lot of wrestlers that he managed mm-hmm. in the '80s and early '90s. The Heenan family. Mm-hmm. Did you mm-hmm. think of the Heenan family as a stable? No, not really. Yeah, right. I gave another, another example of a contemporary in another territory at the exact same time would have been Jimmy Hart in Memphis. 
he he had the first family of wrestling, and it had a revolving door of members. And and and, and the key focal point was Jimmy Hart and his desire to run Jerry Lawler out of wrestling. That was it. You know, the the members didn't matter. It was Jimmy Hart was the focal point, just like you said with Bobby Heenan. Bobby Heenan, same thing. His goal was to run Hulk Hogan out of wrestling, right? And had a revolving door of guys in an attempt to do that. So when Michael Hayes came to the territory from Georgia, a light bulb went off with Gary. And he was like, he saw a chemistry there between Michael and the Von Erich boys. And he, he was he was a smart booker. Another thing bookers do a lot is they kind of you, you got to kind of stay with trends. Yes, you have to have your own mindset, but you got to know what's working in other places too. He had seen their brief run in Mid South. He had seen he you know he knew that this had been a three a three man group at one time, and it really was originally was a two man group of just Terry and Mike. But Bill Watts was worried about these two young partiers on the road, so he stuck the veteran buddy Jack Roberts with them to kind of balance them out. He tells Michael, call Terry, call Buddy, get him in here. We got something special. And uh, the rest is less wrestling history, you know? And, and, and the brilliant booking that he did in that was understanding that, once again, we, we bring it up again, the long-term vision. He brought the Freebirds in as baby faces who were friends with Yvonne Eriks. And that was the promos, and that's what you saw on television was these, these six young guys were thick as thieves, and they partied together, and they wrestled together, and they were friends, and they were going to watch each other's back. And then, you know, that fateful day that you can watch on the network when Ric Flair came in as the world champion, and one, everybody knew one of the Von Erich boys was going to get a title shot, and this go-around it was Kerry. Uh, and they had always been screwed out of the, uh, their title wins by Ric Flair because he's the dirtiest player in the game. Gary decides, I can do that, but also f- turn the, the bird's heel at the same time and really get this thing going the way I want to. And we all know about the, 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 the cage door slam heard around the world that ignited that feud. And that was all booked by Gary Hart. You know, And it, what a great way of, of, of your balancing – a three-man babyface team against a three-man team effectively using the world champion when he comes in. Uh, just, just great booking, you know. And then I don't think I need to speak. All you got to do is look at the gates for the next three years in Dallas to figure out how well that that angle worked out, did, did, you know. And then on top of that, all the underneath stuff was under was over too. You know, you had King Iceman King Parsons and, and Gina Hernandez and, and uh, 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 Gentleman Chris Adams and all these other guys on the undercard. That worked too. So yeah, I mean, I think Rick Rude fits in there somewhere too. Rick, that was later on. Gary wasn't booking by that time. Kim Mantel oh, okay. was. Okay. Uh, but anyway, you know, that's a uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's Gary Hart at his best, I think. You know, and 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 I I would argue, uh, yes, it was a short lived run. It only lit, you know it was only really really like white hot for a couple of years. But that is going to always be one of the greatest angles ever run, and one of the hottest angles and money drawing angles in any territory ever. So, I mean, can you imagine a six-man tag match headlining what for its time would have been the equivalent of a pay-per-view? Mhm. You know. Right. And and another thing about Gary Hart is he had a lot of influence, you know, uh, power might be another word to use. Mm-hmm. Basically, yeah. if if you were a wrestler in the 1980s and you wanted to work anywhere in Texas, you had to go through Gary Hart. Other than Houston. Other than Houston. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you're right. And that's because of what we're talking about. Once once he was able to give Fritz what Fritz wanted, Fritz kind of gave him carte blanche, you know? And 
you know, like I said earlier, Texas was not hot at the time. Dallas was not a hot territory. It wasn't like people were beating down the door when they were leaving one territory to go to, to go work for Fritz. But once Gary got the, got the territory hot, everybody wanted to go there. It's shocking how that works, you know. But <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was up to Gary whether you came in or not. Mm-hmm. And one other thing I wanted to bring up about Gary Hart, uh, one of the last things he ever did, I think it was literally did, like days before he passed, he did mm-hmm. a uh, I'm, and I'm, I'm not being paid anything for this. There's no uh, promotional consideration paid for here. He did mm-hmm. a, in a guest booker interview for Kayfabe Commentaries, and it was about was it outstanding. Uh, yes, it, and it, it was about continuing that that Texas territory uh, after world class shut down and what would eventually I think morph into oh to be USWA, I want to say under, right. under Jerry Jerry Jarrett Jerry Jarrett bought out the Texas end of it, yeah. And right. became part and, of the USWA. Right. And and it was what if he was in charge instead of Jerry uh, at that time. I, I I it's been a while since I've seen it, so maybe I got the the actual time frame built up. But was it uh, was it a good one? I oh, know you're oh, a fan of that series. Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. But he was talking about uh you know special attraction tag team match to you know to, to to pop the gate and he says i'm gonna call i'm gonna give a call to the road warriors and they're gonna come in and they're gonna face the von erics holy crap that match has me at hello <laughs> yeah yeah who do you make the baby faces who do you make the heels yeah that, that that's because, the problem with that you know because let's be honest with it's texas nobody wants to be the von erics and nobody anywhere in the country wanted to be the road warriors the the, the the you know we found that out when they tried to turn them at the end of uh, the end uh, there at WCW or the end of the Crockett days is it mm-hmm. <laughs> right but um okay well I guess I'll give my final pick here for uh for Booker's and this is another guy that falls into that mold of Booker but also a promoter at times and he's prevalent on WWE television to this day and that is Paul Heyman Paul Heyman is one of those you know, you could say you know ECW was his brainchild, so he was both the booker and promoter of ECW. Like what we said at the top of the show, he was able to accentuate the the positives, hide the negatives. Uh, really, the entire run of the original WCW was was his vision. So you know, stuff like Raven versus Tommy Dreamer or versus Sandman, the King of Old School, Steve Carino getting beaten by Francine. Buell McGillicuddy in a bloodbath of a match against Bill Alfonso. Franchise all, Shane Douglas. Yeah, all, all this stuff that would never see the light of day on a national national wrestling promotion today. I mean, could you imagine Bill Alfonso and Buell on right. TV today? WWE would, would not touch that with an 11-foot pole. New um, Jack with a live mic. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, yeah, yeah. More recently in the early 2000s after the brand splits, uh, the, you know, the first one. He ran the show for SmackDown, and he had his go-to guys for in-ring work. Uh, they were called the SmackDown Six, which I believe were Kurt Angle, Benoit, uh, Edge, Eddie. Rey Mysterio, yeah, and Eddie and Chavo. I want to see. I want to say the the idea was simple: is you could put any combination of those six in the ring. Now, granted, today they'd throw all six of them in the ring and have them all jump around for no reason. But have a, have a, I, have I, a I digress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but. You know, Kurt Angle versus Chris Benoit, Chris Benoit versus Edge, Rey Mysterio versus Eddie, Chavo versus Kurt Angle. You know, all those would be great match combinations. Are there are any of those matches you wouldn't pay to see? Oh, I, I would pay to see every single one of them. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't think there's ever going to be any real booking again outside of coming up with his own material for Brock Lesnar, because I, I, I don't think it's a secret that uh, 
Paul has a hand in how Brock Lesnar's handled. And, no, because they are legitimately best friends. That's that's right, a shoot. Right, right, absolutely. And a, another thing, and this is deeper than just booking. This is just showing how smart the man is. Mm-hmm. And um, I, 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 I hate to say it. I'll, I'll take the heat for this train. Well, you can, uh, unless you want to, but. <laughs> Uh, son of a New York Jewish lawyer. Um, uh, he will proudly admit it, so I don't think you should get it easy for that. <laughs> but, the first, he wears that as a badge of honor. But anyway. Right. Uh, but he was able to book guys who were under contract to other promotions, mainly WCW, uh, to appear on an ECW show. I mean, Arn Anderson wrestled for ECW when he was on, under WCW contract. Bobby Eaton did too. Yeah. Uh, Heyman was able to find... Areas where he found legal loopholes and could seek legal action against WCW, but he would dangle that carrot. He'd say, "Oh, hey, look, we 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 could go, we could go see you see each other in court, but hey, uh, you could give me Arn Anderson for a couple of dates, and we'll, we'll we'll call it even." And even as ridiculous as WCW got, and believe me, we're probably going to have WCW shows in the future. What would you say? Uh, no, no, no. Let's pursue legal action. Or right. Oh, uh, okay, Arn. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy fun. Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, have fun in Philly. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. And you know, I think uh, off booking, but I think for somebody like Arn, who came up, grew up a fan of the territories in a territory, and started out wrestling in a territory, going back to ECW was kind of essentially a territory. He probably enjoyed it. Oh yeah, Bobby Eaton too. You know, um, my thing with Paul, I think you're. When you said about accentuating the positive and eliminating the negatives, in my opinion, he's the best booker of any of the ones we're going to name or have named or will ever name at that. He's the absolute best at that ever. I mean, look, he did so little with so so much with so little. I mean, look at the roster of guys that he had in ECW, and I respect all of them. They're all my brothers. But let's be honest, most of them were limited, and their, and their, their, their limitations were exposed when they made it to WWE to a much bigger stage. But but for that crowd, and even to a little bit larger once they got national exposure on TNN, he had fans believing that some of these guys were the baddest men on the planet, like Tommy Dreamer mm-hmm. and Taz and Sabu. and th- th- All three of them, great, great talents. I'm not taking away anything from any of those guys. You know, I'm just saying, uh, the great example of that was, we've talked about it off air, was 911. He had one move, he was a choke slam. And that was the for a while there he was the most over guy in that promotion. He came out and he got a road warrior pop. I mean, it was just it was insane. And he kept begging Paul, let me let me work, let me work, let me work a full match. And Paul's like, You'll be exposed. Well, fall finally Paul capitulated. And he worked Ron Simmons, a guy who you know, it's Ron Simmons, he's a Hall of Famer. He's a great worker. We know that. He was exposed. Crowd never reacted the same again. And Paul tried to warn him, you know. So and and I think it could be said. Uh, I think we brought him up before, but I, I know he's a friend of yours. New Jack. I mean, when's New Jack at his best? Wrestling a match or coming out with a shopping cart full of weapons? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that all started. And New Jack has said this on record before. Jim Cornette uh, gave him their their break in Smoky Mountain, but it was perfected in ECW. You know, so. Yeah, I think, I mean, once again, uh, getting Steve Austin when he had to wait out his 90-day no-compete clause between going, leaving WCW and going to WWF. Well, I can't wrestle Paul. My knees hurt. Well, come on and cut promos. We never yeah. heard Austin cut promos mm-hmm. at that point. Right, and right. I, I, I just, you know, I mean, I'm saying I, I, I think a few people like Steve Austin promos. You know, he had, a, he had an idea there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the way he put it was, and he, I, I, 
Paul Heyman does a much better Steve Austin impression than I could ever do. Well, damn, um, kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where he's like, oh, I can't work. My, my, you know, my, my knees hurt. And uh, Paul's like, well, you got something to say. I have a show. Yeah. Hello. Here's a live mic. Here's a live mic. Here's a live camera. You know, and and those those promos are the birth of Stone Cold. Now, granted, there was a little hiccup in the road called the Ringmaster before we got to that, but I don't think anybody argues up to and including the man himself that was the birth of stone cold right right and and, and it, it kind of harkens back to what we were talking about promoters sometimes having bad ideas you know yeah let, let's take steve austin call him the ringmaster and shave his head and have ted dibiase do his talking for him but i digress right. the shaved head worked out <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah we had to go completely bald for it to work but yeah you're right <sighs> i guess you want me to go on to my next one then Yes, yes, your your, yeah, your my, final pick last, before we go to our last mutual pick. pick. Yeah, my last booker once again. He said his pattern. Also a disciple of <laughs> of, of Eddie Graham, uh, and that would be the cowboy Bill Watts. Um, Bill Watts was, of course, uh, one of these guys that was a promoter and a booker. But like much like Eddie Graham, was times when he had bookers, uh, but sometimes he booked it himself. But he will tell you he learned to book under Eddie Graham uh, as a young, you know, up and coming, big, tough guy. And, and Bill was. He had a great look. He was a big guy. He was rugged. He had the, the amateur background of playing football at, you know, at Oklahoma and uh, could talk, which was unusual for big guys at the time. Uh, went into Florida as a heel and worked programs with, with the Briscoes and saw how Eddie Graham booked it. And later on, when he got his own promotion and bought out Leroy McGurk or stole the territory from Leroy McGurk, depending on who you listen to. Um, his booking mentality became what was Mid-South, which was the birth of some of the most uh, well-known talents and uh, characters ever to come in wrestling. This was, you know, uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Uh, Ted DiBiase. Ted DiBiase, Ted DiBiase yeah. Uh, Sting, uh, Rick Steiner. Shawn um, Michaels. Yeah, Shawn Michaels all had their start there. But I think the one that probably most people, including Bill himself, would tell you was his crowning achievement of booking and envision was putting junkyard dog on top. Like we said, no one seeing something in a guy junkyard dog was not a guy that like you said earlier, was not going to wrestle a 60 minute Broadway, but boy, he had charisma and he could cut a promo and he had a great look and he just, he listened to his fans. He knew this is a white guy promoting in the South uh, right after the civil rights movement, we're talking, you know, the early eighties. So some of those ner- raws or uh, nerves are still raw early to mid eighties. The idea of putting a black guy as your top baby face was very unheard of in this area at the time. There have been a few other times. Rocky Johnson had had some runs in Memphis as a top guy, you know, Bobo Brazil, Bobo Brazil, but he was mostly out of Detroit. You know, he was more of a special attraction down here. Did have a run here in the Carolinas, but yeah, you're right. It just it wasn't very often, but he saw, I mean, like Bill Watts said, he looked at his crowd. They could see they were fifty percent African American, and they he wasn't giving them anybody they could relate to. So he gave him Junkyard Dog, and he he is a very famous story. When he first brought Junkyard Dog in, uh, he wasn't actually booking; he was just a promoter. Uh, his broker was another great African American, uh, Ernie Ladd, probably another person that will have a, a a standalone show on one day. But um, <laughs> that drunken oh, Indian, gonna I put love them Ernie fellas. Ladd. <laughs> yeah, you gotta love Ernie Ladd. They, they, they was one of a kind, but, but wrestling business is full of one of a kinds. But anyway, uh, he sent Junkyard Dog down to I want to say Jackson, Mississippi, because they used to do a lot of their TV there. And um, to play on what you said, Ted DiBiase said about JYD and about the, you know being able to do a Broadway. 
Ernie Ladd was not happy with this because he because he, he saw he's all he saw was JYD's limitations. And after he so he put JYD in like a twenty minute or twenty five minute match. I don't think any of us who've watched any JYD matches know a twenty five minute match with JYD was is that had to be brutal. You know, <laughs> that just had mm-hmm. to be brutal yeah. to say it the least. It goes back to the kind of the Goldberg analogy. You know, where, exactly. You know, exactly. Goldberg's probably more athletic than JYD was, but you don't want to see right. Goldberg wrestle for twenty minutes. You want to see him hit no. a couple moves and and, and win. You want right. to see JYD it's, shake his knees, salute to the fans, hit the headbutt, and, and get the, the win. Butt, do, do the big thump and take it to the house. Yeah. <laughs> and so Ernie Lag calls up calls up uh bill watts the next day ain't gonna work and now you remember bill watts and Ernie ladder are best friends they go back to playing ball together you know they played a couple years of pro ball together and bill asked ernie lad what are you talking about a kid i put him in a 25 minute match he can't do this he said you know what ernie you're fired he fired Ernie on the spot he said i didn't send him to you to, to see what he couldn't do i said to see what he could do and to put it into perspective, to put it into perspective, wasn't Ernie Ladd one of Bill Watts' best friends at the time as well? He was his best friend. He was his best friend. Like I said they played pro ball together. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, eventually they made up and Ernie came back as the booker. But later on, after Ernie had left and Bill had taken over booking himself, the, 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 I think the, the angle that probably got JYD over the most of that crowd right before he went to Vince and, and blew up at a national level because he was exposed to a bigger audience was a great angle. Actually, I think Buck Robley, Colonel Buck Robley, might have been helping Bill Book at the time. And Bill's one of those just so weird because, like I said, he was the promoter, but he had such a heavy hand in the booking, he was the booker too, you know? Um, they did this great angle where the Freebirds, uh, this is pre their run in world class, this is part of what Gary Hart saw, that thought he needed to bring them in, where they threw, quote-unquote, Freebird hair cream into JYD's eyes and blinded him. And then, because Bill knew, once again, playing up your strengths, right? What JYD's strengths was, we just said, was cutting a promo, right? Connecting with the people. Has JYD go out and cut this promo, promo, with bandages over his eyes, and tell the story of how, and this was a shoot, by the way, at least the part the part of you already mentioned, his first daughter had just been born. And the free birds had taken away from him the ability to see the birth of his own first daughter, because they blinded him. Is that not that's that's booking and babyface one one, isn't it? <laughs> Can you imagine something like that happening in a reality show where yes. you see somebody being interviewed in that chair and they get they got the sunglasses on or something like that and the, and then they oh yeah and he had the, he needed he had the big gauze bandages on and he had the sunglasses on so you could see the bandages and of course JYD takes the sunglasses off you know during the the promo. And this all led to a blindfold match again, a blindfold match, chain, uh, dog collar match against Michael Hayes that sold out the Superdome. That's good booking. When you sell a building like Superdome, you've booked it right, you know. And it's just it was that was playing up the strengths of his talent, knowing what his fans, all the things we've talked about, and he did it, you know. And uh, of course, we we lost JYD way too soon, you know. But um, when we had him, when tragic, he was young, quite frankly. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, but obviously, you know, something was there because well, long after that, Vince hired him, and he was, until he became undependable, he was essentially the number one guy or number two guy after Hogan in, in, in the WWF. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, it was really him, uh, maybe Hacksaw, but, I mean, he, mm-hmm. he, was, he was Hogan's best buddy on screen for a while. Sno- Snooker was up there, too, at that point, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I, and Bill saw that, and Bill pushed him, and... I can't think just that whole angle of 
you know, you blinded me and I can't see the birth of my own daughter. You talk about, we talk about all the time, an emotional connection, get the fans to emotional. Come on, man. That's, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Now, now Bill, of course, later on would come back and had a brief run as the booker in WCW in the early nineties. And that is an example of me once again, of what I talked about with George Scott, where sometimes they can get a little bit past their prime, burn out on ideas. I know what Bill was trying to do, and he gets he gets bashed a lot for that run in WCW. And that was around the time you started watching was when Bill right. Watts was uh, absolutely. I I loved that run. That that is a, mm-hmm. a, a, a time. But he when, was also the one. But he also did this like taking the, the mats off the floor around the ring and and banning top rope stuff and reinstituting the over the top rope rule and things that that I think wrestling had passed that. I know why he was doing it because the guys were out of control because they had these guaranteed contracts and he was trying to you know. But it didn't last long. And Bill, by his own admission, has said afterwards that he was burned out. He probably should have never took the job, you know. And to give you an idea, you know, again, we're talking at a time when WCW was owned by a corporate entity. And Bill Watts is the the type of guy who would come to work. Uh, I don't know if it's literally, but figuratively, he would come to work on a motorcycle wearing wearing a leather jacket and sweatpants and such. And yeah, he would. No, it's walk- a shoot. He would go, he would walk into Titan Towers with tennis shoes. A fanny pack, Zubaz pants, and a T-shirt on. Right, and, and to a building of corporate suits. Suits, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was he was a wrestler. He was one of the boys, you know. Uh, but anyway, but at the same time, out of that same era, we remember this is also the man who put who put the first major world title of a company on a black man. He was the Booker when Ron Simmons won the mm-hmm. world title. Absolutely. And when you asked him why, he goes because it made sense. He was over, and he was legit, and. The, by all by all stretch of imagination, no one can say that Ronson's had the greatest world title run out of any world champion. But it wasn't a bad one. And no. he was very believable, and it was not Turner. Go back and watch when he won the title in Baltimore, and he beat Vader. That crowd went nuts. Oh, absolutely. They went nuts. He was the guy who pushed Vader into being the monster he was when he was in WCW. He was the one that kept Sting on top as a top babyface and worked around his injuries when Ron won the title. So right. there were some good things under the Bill Watts era, too, in WCW. He had a little of the magic left, I guess is what I'm saying. Williams and Gordy as a tag team. Yeah, I saw them in Japan. Once again, once again, we talked about how different regions were different. Bill Watts was a big, strong, tough guy. He was a man's man. And you see all the wrestlers we're talking about were his top guys. They all fit Sting, DiBiase, JYD, Gordy, Williams, Duggan. These are big, rugged, tough, real guys. That was what the Mid-South Territory, Ernie Ladd, that was the Mid-South Territory. That's what he liked, you know, so anyway. Uh, who are we, who, who we mutually agreeing on since we've talked about all these other great bookers? Uh, did you want to do any honorable mentions or should we just cut to the chase with? Yeah, I th- yeah, I think there, I mean, uh, I'll name a couple. And if I, if I leave anybody out or somebody you want to add, that's fine. Okay. I, I've already mentioned him a little bit once, but I think another great booker uh, would be Jim Cornette. There's another yes. one I think people need to look into. Yeah. Uh, I think his run in Smoky Mountain speaks for itself. There were times when some of these other bookers we've named had were, on, were heads of committees that Jim Cornette was on. Um, Jim Cornette's never going to break the world uh, or, or shock the world with something new and revol- evolutionary, but I think that his stuff will always be logical and make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Pat Patterson, without question, everybody will tell you that the true genius behind WWF the entire time Vince Jr. has run it as, as far as creative goes is Pat Patterson. Maybe the best finish man ever. You ever see a great finish that you remember forever out of a WWF pay-per-view? 
pretty sure that 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 Pat Patterson was involved in that. Um, I remember uh, Edge and Christian saying, I think it was on their their WWE TV mm-hmm. show, but they, they said mm-hmm. something about they they collaborated and they thought about it and they they got this great finish together and it's mm-hmm. going to be awesome. And then they go to Pat Patterson and Pat Patterson like shoots him down and like. Five words. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, another one I think uh, merits look mentioning uh, Eddie Gilbert. Uh, Eddie mm-hmm. Gilbert uh, had the run, had the book in ECW before uh, Paul Heyman did it and changed it from Eastern Championship to Extreme. He booked in Puerto Rico. Um, was uh, just just a solid. Once again, uh, honed his craft in Memphis and learned it there. Uh, to keep the Memphis trend up, uh, the next two I'd mention, honorable mention, would be Bill Dundee. Some of the hottest runs you had in Memphis in the late 70s and early 80s were when, when Bill Dundee had the book. Uh, he was a great booker. And the last one, who booked some in Memphis and booked in Puerto Rico and booked a, a monster run in Puerto Rico. Well, Puerto Rico had kind of died after all the controversy uh, over the Bruiser Brody murder. Uh, kind of got it back on fire, and that would be Dirty Dutch Mantel. And yes, I'm biased. He's my friend. But um, and then, of course, we later went on and booked some in TNA uh, when TNA actually was making sense and, and was good. I believe he was the head of the booking committee when we had that wonderful uh, Samoa Joe Kurt Angle feud that wound up with the MMA match at the end. I think that was that was Dutch's doing. Yes, so yes, um, I, those I are five right. honorable mentions. Five honorable mentions. I, anybody else you can think of? I did. I left off that list. I was going to mention Dutch uh, for all the reasons you had said. Uh, but uh, others on my list, uh, Ric Flair, because he did legitimately book WCW for a while. I believe he was and, and the, I, the Let me booker. give a caveat on Rick. Yeah, let me give a caveat on Rick. Rick, especially on his podcast when he had it with Downplay hit, Tony Schiavone has said to himself on his podcast, and so has Kevin Sullivan, I think Rick likes to play down that side because he always wants to be seen as one of the boys. Rick was a much better booker and creative guy than people give him credit for, and it get, especially for, for he gives himself credit for, which is unusual because Ric Flair will give himself credit for anything because he's Ric Flair. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, another guy we mentioned at the top of the show uh, about Memphis, and that's Jerry the King Lawler. He did a lot mm-hmm. of his own booking. He he did a lot yeah, of the when booking. Bill Dunn- yeah, when Bill Dundee wasn't booking, he was the one that was booking that right. Way, you know, and uh, Jerry Jarrett. I know we we kind of disagree on Jerry Jarrett for uh, to to an extent, but Jerry did call King the best total package he's ever worked with. Because hey, we, we we said last week on this on the Jarrett uh, Gula split episode, he was the one who brought the rise to, J- to Jerry Lawler. I think that's mm-hmm. all you need to say. And he, right. and I believe he also booked either him or either either him or or. or uh, that was him, I believe. It was either him or Bill Dundee, probably a combination of the two. They booked the Kaufman Lawler feud. I don't think I need to say anything more about that. Right. Right. But you know, but King could wrestle, he could talk, he could book, he could promote. Uh, I did have Jerry Jarrett on my list, although, you know, you, you've kind of pointed out to me uh, off camera that he was more of a pr- promoter than a booker. But he was he was a booker be- before, you know. We talked about that, you know. Right. So. Right. And, and uh last one on my list again, another one that maybe is more of a promoter than a booker and that's uh Jim Crockett and Jim Crockett Jr. Yeah, they always have bookers, but they they definitely they are the ones that that definitely like I brought up when you brought up George Scott, they they weren't so great at having a vision themselves as they were knowing seeing guys who did have a vision and knowing it would work and then hiring them and letting them do it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think uh Vern and Greg kind of fit in that mold as well because mm-hmm. I've heard sure. I've heard Greg talk on his guest booker where uh uh, the, the host Sean Oliver will say, "Okay, so what do you do here? What do you?" And 
Greg would turn it around and say, well, what do you think? He's like, well, I'm not booking. And Greg's like, this is how I book. I get feedback. And then I go with <laughs> based on the feedback. Right. See, and, 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 and so everybody's process is different, you know? I've booked some independent shows, uh, never ran a show, uh, help promoters. And sometimes it's been a collaborative effort when I've booked. Sometimes it's been just do what you want to do and tell the boys what you, what you want them to do. I've had others who asked me to book, and when I've come in, they didn't like my ideas and can be. Excuse my French. <laughs> it just, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, I've, I've, it, that's, that's part of the creative process in wrestling, you know? Uh, okay. You know, <laughs> well, anyway, you, you, brought, you brought up Crockett last. So that was probably a perfect segue to who, who we both agree on. Yeah, a- absolutely. We'll, we'll wind it up and take it home in our final discussion here. Our, our mutually agreed upon example for a great booker, and that is the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Another guy you could say did both booking and promoting because he did have his own promotion for a while in, in Texas. And I called- actually got to work under his booking. This is one of the guys I actually worked under. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Yeah, turn, and, Turnbuckle and, and, Championship Wrestling, right? Yes, that's correct. And, and you know what? I hate to say it again, but also another disciple of Eddie Graham. <laughs> <laughs> again, you see a pattern forming here. But uh, <laughs> Poor Paul Heyman, he's the only one left out. <laughs> right. But uh, now, we can't talk about Dusty booking without bringing up the term Dusty Finish, which was coined because of his booking style. Now, the uh, examples of Dusty Finishes, which is loosely translated, the screw job finish where you think the babyface wins but there's some sort of shenanigans and explanation and the heel walks out uh, in the end remains the champion. Right. Great American bash. 1985 is, is the perfect example. The pay-per-view went off the air and everybody believed that they just saw dusty Stargate. topple. Uh, Stargate. Okay. Yeah. They, uh, everybody believed that they just saw dusty topple Ric Flair for the NWA world title. But then you turn on TV the following week and there'd been a reversal or yeah, the main event of, of great American bash. 85 was Flair versus Nikita. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, or maybe there's a ref bump, or the baby, mm. or the the baby face is hit with a chair behind the referee's back, and then what was the that more recent one that Vince did with Dean Ambrose and somebody? Well, who oh, was that? Gosh, uh, that was about a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I I, I I'm drawing a blank now, but that's because there's been like. 75 gazillion pay-per-views it's a easier when there are only two or three a year or one a year right right but basically when when you get the screw job finish where the the hero wins but then there's a reversal that that's kind of lumped in with the dusty finishes uh, finish on if i'm not mistaken and like i said uh, when we talked about this back on the dusty tribute show that was actually an eddie graham finish and eddie and jackie fargo used it when he was booking Memphis back in the day. And, 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 uh, you know, we brought up on the gold dust trio toots Monts used the dusty finish, you mm-hmm. know, back in the thirties. It's right. I think it just got the dusty moniker because he was the first to use it uh, to a national audience. And, and he became so reliant upon it there at the end of his run of booking WC or at the time Crockett mid Atlantic, you know, in, in the mid eighties that it became synonymous with him. And I think he gets an un- unfair rap on that one. I don't know if you feel the same way. No, I, th- I think it's fair to say. But uh, to give some examples here, Dusty booked a lot of that mid-'80s NWA or, or Crockett territories. Uh, he booked a lot of that early horseman stuff, so that classic scene of the horseman jumping out of their Cadillac and breaking Dusty's arm. That's and, Dusty. Which, which led to the Hard Times promo. Dusty booked No, the that. Hard Times promo was... Was then breaking his leg in the in the in the cage in the Omni in Atlanta. Okay, let me uh, talk about the Crockett territory stuff. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but 
Um, You're talking about my childhood now. <laughs> right. But there's an infamous story, and this is kind of getting into the even bookers have bad ideas and mm-hmm. sometimes go their own way when they when they probably shouldn't. There's an infamous story about when Ted Turner bought Crockett in, what was it, 88, 89, I want to say? 88, late 88. And Ted himself laying out a strict no-blood rule. Well, what does Dusty book? He books the Road Warriors turning heel and gouging his eye open with a spike. And right. he got fired, and that's what led to him working for Vince and shoveling crap and wearing polka dots. Yeah, and, and, and caveat to that was the week before, the what got him the warning about the blood was the week before that on World Championship Wrestling, he had Paul Heyman, another name we've already mentioned, come out as the manager of the new of the you know the original Midnight Express and turned the Midnight Express babyface and had them jump Jim Cornette and he just did a massive juice job. Mm-hmm. So there was this, this massive amount of blood and and and, and Cornette has told the story. Well, Jim's a baby. I want you to get to color this time because it doesn't seem Bobby and, and and Stan bleed. They ain't seen you bleed, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he has this massive bloodbath and that's when Turner says, eh, "No more." And like you say, he turns around and says, "Really? I'll show you." What does he do the next week? Like. You said. <laughs> <laughs> Worth mentioning on the side that that's one of Raven's favorite angles is that original Midnight Express versus the Midnight Express. And oh, it was awesome. Hornet has awesome. gone on record as saying Paul Heyman is the only man on the face of the planet who could turn me babyface. <laughs> turn me babyface. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But that was all Dusty's booking, you know. And 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 once again, how do you turn a dashardly heel team like Midnight Express babyface and it works? Or at there's a reason it's called a Road Warrior Pop. Babyface team like Road Warriors heal unless it's a genius like like Dusty Rhodes. Nobody else could have done it, I don't think. Besides just the individual angles I think Dusty ran, it was just the long-term grand scheme of things like you talked about. I mean, he he didn't create Starcade, but he came up with a name. The Great American Bash was all his. What a great name. That's right. the only WCW uh, leftover pay-per-view that vince used the name of you know Mm -hmm. and now it's been discontinued but he ran the great it's just a great name you know and and um dusty was the guy that that you know unfortunately never got to see it through because of the tragic car wreck but the rise of magnum ta like you said Mm -hmm. the formation of the four horsemen war games uh, match uh, war games which is my favorite gimmick match of all time um he's just and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I know I'm biased because it was my childhood. The building and pushing of Nikita Koloff as a monster foreign menace is the greatest build I've ever seen of that type of, of, of archetype of, of wrestling heel ever. Better than, and, I, and, I, and I dare say, once again, to go back to my first choice, he probably got some of the know-how to do that off of the Pat Song Nam stuff from back when he turned babyface, you know? Uh, but I mean, better than uh, the all due respect to Rusev and 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 Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik and every other great foreign menace gimmick you can think Yokozuna. The best I've ever seen, in my opinion, was Nikita Koloff. That was Dusty, you know. Um, just and, and Nikita he was would go and Nikita would uh, be off mic, like when he'd interact with fans and such, or he'd still speak. Oh, he in the totally kayfabed English. it. <laughs> yeah. He kayfabed. He, he like He's ran a restaurant. I think he ran a restaurant or something like that in the eighties, and he'd still show up <laughs> talking in his broken Scott, English. <laughs> Scott Simpson has legally changed his name to Nikita Koloff, and I mean to the to to the perturbing of the boys, he would be that way. You know, he would kayfabe the boys back then with would stay in character and. 
there's a famous story of they were on Crockett's private jet and he was in it and Arn Anderson, who was just sick of it, pulled his glasses down and looked over the top of his glass and said, you know what? We know we all know you're Scott Simpson from Minnesota. You can knock it off. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. But once again, he saw the Nikita would tell you uh, that he was not the greatest in-ring guy. But knowing what guy fit the look and what he wanted, that's Dusty. He saw the kid, saw something in him and made him. And I can tell you, uh, even though it was the Crockett's, and like I said, I'm biased when it comes to Crockett stuff. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that. Go back and look at the magazine covers and the coverage and the after mags back then. Nikita was right up there with Roddy Piper in that era of wrestling across the country as the most reviled and feared heel in all of wrestling. So, yeah. All right. Anything you want to say in closing here? Or? No. I, I the best way I could I could say about about Dusty. I want to have what they call Dusty. I'm I, I am going to steal from something that a story that Ric Flair told in his Hall of Fame induction speech, which was, and I think it sums up Dusty in his booking. He looked at Dusty one time as Dusty was just kind of looking off into space and. Champ asked, "Dream, Dusty, what are you doing? I'm geniusing. So I think that wraps <laughs> up. I think that sums up Dusty about as well as you. I mean, was just brilliant. It was this and all the guys we named, the ones we went into long form, and the the list of honorable mentions are all great bookers. And and I I would dare say anybody that's listening, if you didn't know who booked some of the favorite memories you've had in the last twenty, thirty, forty years of wrestling." One of the names we mentioned probably was involved in it it's in some way on the creative end, wouldn't you think? Absolutely. And if you have any questions about who may have booked what at, at some point in time, uh, the mm-hmm. Twitter is at A1W Podcast. The Facebook is at A1 Wrestling. The website is ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. We do have Facebook reply options on our website there. Uh, let us know uh, what, what your favorite moment was, and we can probably tell you who booked it. And if uh, train, if people want to yell at you for uh, your choices, that you can be reached at crazy train underscore JB, correct? That is correct. And if there's right. a moment you di- didn't like, you know, tell us that one too, and we will let you know who booked this crap. Okay. <laughs> it works both ways. <laughs> yes, absolutely. All right. And on that note, we are going to bow out on this volume seven of Classic Wrestling Memories. We will be back next week. And uh, have we decided our topic for next week? Are we, are we doing the NWO or? We might. Uh, we've discussed doing. Uh, we've, you know, we've we've discussed doing uh, music and the importance of music and wrestling. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if any of you, now that you've heard two of the possible uh, topics we're going to go on, if you have any have any favorites uh, you'd like to hear about, let us know. Those are just two things we've discussed and kind of given a rough draft on where we go with those. But we, mm-hmm. if those sound great to you, let us know. If there's something else, yeah, uh, let yeah. us know. Absolutely. We mentioned Ernie Ladd. We we mentioned we mentioned uh, we mentioned JYD. We mentioned Gary Hart as a manager. There's a lot of ways we could go, folks. Just let us know. Yeah. Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan. You know, you know, if there's a biography you want us to do, if there's a territory you want us to do, if there's a year uh, for a specific territory or, or Bob, a specific Bobby the angle. Brain Heen. Yeah, by the Brain Heenan, Calgary, and the rise of Owen Hart and Chris Benoit in the late '80s. You name it, we'll we'll do it. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. research it and do it. You just let us know. Absolutely. And I can be reached at Seth at A1-Wrestling.com. Once again, Twitter, A1W Podcast. Facebook, A1 Wrestling. A1-Wrestling.com is the website. ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the podcast website. We will talk to you folks again next week with another dose of Classic Wrestling Memories.
Classic Wrestling Memories as part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. You know, earlier you were talking about uh, writers versus bookers and the terminology they use nowadays. Mm -hmm. Just look at it this way. This was uh, actually the answer uh, given to Jim Cornette by one of his listeners on his podcast to the difference between a writer and a booker. Sports entertainment is written. Pro wrestling is booked. Sounds perfect.